Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special episode of What's the Res? This episode is intended to be a freebie version of our premium content. We wanted to use this as a way to let people know what's available on What's the Res premium debates. We have a whole channel dedicated specifically to live debates between real people. Uh, this debate is going to be between myself, Josh Herring, and Ethan Delves. Ethan is a high school junior at Thales Academy Rollsville. I'm the debate coach here at Thales Academy Rollsville. And today we are going to be debating the resolution, Religion Does More Harm Than Good. We're going to be using a uh, format of debate that we've been recently experimenting with called International Public Debate Association format. Uh, it's a very quick format, and in this version of debate, the two sides have a very limited amount of research time, and uh, in a formal round, we'd get 30 minutes. For our debate today, Ethan and I limited ourselves to 10 minutes, and then the flow of debate occurs in approximately 28 minutes, where both sides get to make opening statements, followed by cross-examination, and then there's follow-up speeches that kind of function as both constructive and rebuttal, and then, the, uh, and then you get to the final parts of the debate. So uh, today is also a very special day at our school. Our administrator is moving on to other things. So we want to dedicate this episode to Dr. Edwards. And for that reason, we've asked her to watch the debate. And she will actually be scoring the debate by the end of today. And she will be on the record telling us who exactly has won today's debate. Now, you can access all of our premium content at whatstheres.podbean.com premium. And we'll have that link available in the show description. And with that, we hope that you enjoy our debate today. Hello, everyone. My name is Ethan Delves. Today, I'll be arguing the affirmative side of the resolution, religion does more harm than good. What I want to do first for this specific resolution is bring your attention to the topic at hand. What we have is a weighing between the harms that religion does between the good that it does. So what we need is a way to weigh those things, not to be redundant. The way we're going to weigh this debate is by looking at the negative impacts of religion that it's had on the world and the positive impacts from my opponent's side of the case that it has on the world. And it's up to you guys to decide who wins the debate at the end. And Dr. Edwards, since the episode is dedicated to her, by weighing these impacts next to each other. But we need to make sure that they're tangible enough that we can actually have an effective weighing mechanism. Now that, that makes sense, let's go into some definitions for the debate. Religion, I'm going to define as the Abrahamic religions, so the three main Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Second, let's go to the word harm. These are material and tangible harms that religion has had. And, sec and thirdly, sorry, good are the tangible benefits that religion has had upon society. With that, I'll move into my contentions. My first contention is terrorism, specifically related to Islam, but again, there are other forms of terrorism as well. First, I'm going to focus on ISIS and the fact that ISIS has, according to UMD.com, caused about 33,000 deaths total in, throughout the entire world of terrorist attacks, including abroad and including here. Secondly, there have been about 1,951 ISIS attacks only in Iraq. And third, in 2014, Baghdad experienced about 42 fatalities per 100,000 people due to ISIS attacks. Here's what we see here is that we see a religion, Islam in this case, taking people and indoctrinating them to believe that they need to do certain things in order to follow their faith. And what are the impacts of that? What we see is a negative impact that these people have been indoctrinated and go out to commit acts of violence within the world. What we see is a common theme that will run throughout this case is that religion is not able to be adequately handled by the people who believe in it. Second, let's go on to my next contention, where women are persecuted in Saudi Arabia. What we see in Saudi Arabia is an environment where Sharia law is of the utmost priority. What Sharia law, what Sharia law dictates 
is that women have to follow certain rules that men don't. One thing is clothing restrictions. You can see another thing where women were just recently allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. You may see this as an improvement, but when you look at the overall picture, what you see is that Sharia law and Islam and this religion is creating an environment where different problems have to be solved for, where they wouldn't have had to be solved for in the first place. Third, my third contention is that religion is inherently divisive. When you bring religion into the world, what it does is divide people. It hardly brings people together. It only brings people together under the specific system of beliefs that we see. Religion is not necessarily divisive in between different religions either. You can take Christianity for an example. It divides people within itself. There are several different denominations, endless debate, and here's one thing you should take note of. You never find the conclusions to what you're looking for. So, again, religion is inherently divisive. And according to the United States, religious persecution in China is, quote, the stain of the century. The European Court of Human Rights in 2003 said that Sharia law is incompatible with human rights. What we see is not religion drawing people together, but religion tearing people apart. You can look to the Jews in World War II, where religion put a target on their backs for their system of beliefs and caused the, um, the genocide of about 10 million of these people just in World War II alone. My fourth contention, religion, and this flows back to my first one as well, is a source of unnecessary indoctrination. Again, the common theme that people are, are unable to responsibly hold and practice the beliefs that religion puts out for them. What we see is that a lot of people who practice religion are actually unable to comprehend the true the meanings of their beliefs and the extent to which they believe in it. While there are some that do, what we're looking at, again, is a tangible way to weigh the benefits of religion on the world against the harms of religion on the world. And what we see through a common theme, through terrorism, the persecution of women in Saudi Arabia, the inherent divisive nature of religion, is that people, humanity, is unable to hold religion responsibly and practice it in the way that it should be practiced. So what does this mean as far as the resolution goes? Again, the resolution is religion does more harm than good. When you look at harm and good, you need to look at it under the circumstance that the people who are believing in the religion are the ones creating the circumstances for themselves. And when you put religion in a world with people who are unable to handle it responsibly, what you see is a list of negative impacts that flow from that. My opponent, in order to win this round, will need to be able to prove definitively that he can tangibly weigh the benefits that religion has had upon the world and connect these benefits specifically to religion, the Abrahamic religions that we are discussing in the debate today, and weigh them against the negative impacts that I have brought to bear. And with that, I'm open for cross-examination. All right, thank you for your case. Uh, I want to start with a question about ISIS. Can you, can you give me a time frame on ISIS? How long has ISIS existed? Do they still exist today? They do exist today. They've existed and been prevalent in the early 21st century. How much of the early 21st century? Are we talking like 2000? Are we talking 2011? When are we talking about? Well, specifically ISIS would be a little bit later than simply just the 2000s, but you can see groups such as Al-Qaeda coming in around 2001 and 9-11 era is a popular example of terrorist attacks happening earlier in time uh, as your, well. Your, your case focused specifically on ISIS as an example. Are you saying that ISIS and Al-Qaeda are the same? I'm saying that they're both terrorist groups that cause negative impacts of religion in okay. society. Uh, but are they even the same terrorist? Are they, do they have similar religious views or do they have different religious views? Does they're ISIS both, admit that Al-Qaeda has the right religious views? They, have a, they don't have the same religious views, but they're both united under Islam. Okay. Uh, now, with that, um, I have a question for you about the nature of this debate. Okay. Should our, does our, does, in your view, does the weighing that the judge needs to do, does that focus on extremes or does that focus on the normal, on the normal practice of a religion? 
The weighing focuses mainly on our ability as both sides of the debate to connect religion to the tangible benefits and tangible harms. So Warren is the key of this debate. So if I can show, so then if I can show that in normal practice, religion leads to more benefits as opposed to fringe practices having some harms, then that my, my normal benefits should outweigh fringe harms. As long as you're not counting terrorists as an extreme, because I would say terrorism and the amount of deaths that have amounted from that would not be considered an extreme example okay. that should be taken into account. But um, again, warrant is the idea here okay. and that the religion leads to is the essential part of the resolution. Okay, can you explain a little bit more about your point about Jews in World War II? I was a little confused what you were implying with that, with your, your example there. So I'm not saying here that this is people's ability to handle religion irresponsibly. What I'm saying is that religion was a playing factor in putting a target on those people's backs and it was a center for persecution. And I'm going to go ahead and get started with the negative speech. Now I get six minutes for this. Ethan, are you ready? Ready. Judge, are you ready? Wonderful. With that, and we'll start now. All right. Thank you to the judge. Thank you to our watching audience. Uh, this is a lot of fun to do in front of people. Thank you to Ethan for a great affirmative there. Let me go ahead and get right in. Uh, Ethan, we are in agreement on defining religion as the Abrahamic faiths, and I would add to that that as the negative, I only need to show the benefits of any one of the Abrahamic faiths. I don't necessarily need to show that all of them uh, are necessarily beneficial. Uh, we're in agreement on good, and I, I also I accept your weighing mechanism. Uh, as I understood that, you've, you've placed upon me the burden uh, to show that the tangible benefits outweigh the tangible harms. Which means that in this debate, we are not debating about the truth value of any one of these religions. We're asking about whether they, in their practice, do they really bring benefit to the people who practice these faiths. And as long as we're in agreement with that, let's, uh, I want to go on to establish my case. I want to make four arguments that all highlight the benefits of religious practices. And in doing so, I want to attempt to show how the really all of the Abrahamic faiths, uh, in, when they are practiced, create benefits to the societies where those beliefs are held by the majority of the population. And if I have time after that, I want to go ahead and begin responding to the affirmative case. So with that, argument one is focuses on poverty relief. So uh, I want to focus again specifically on the Abrahamic faiths. Within Judaism itself, there is an ancient tradition of caring for the poor. We see this in the Old Testament, with the Old Testament having commands to, for those who were wealthy landowners to, leave, to let the widows and children glean grain in their fields. When we get to the growth of Christianity, one of the earliest teachings of Christianity uh, stressed the importance of considering the universal human nature and how much Jesus wanted people to care for those who were powerless, those who had no money, those who were literally the weakest in society. He does this in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus specifically states that what you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. And what that does is that drawing from that original conception in Judaism and then expressed in its fullness in Christianity, that brings about a universal poverty relief impulse that carries straight through from then until today. What we see when we contrast that emphasis on caring for the poor, caring for those who are disenfranchised, caring for those who can't care for themselves, what we see there when we contrast that with the pagan world of ancient Rome and Greece is that there was not a similar care for the poor in the ancient classical world. That is unique to Judaism and Christianity in practice. Now that impulse is not as religiously rooted today, but it is still carried on through both Jewish and Christian uh, charities worldwide to provide immense poverty relief on a global scale. Now, to bring Islam into this, Islam is a little bit late to the game historically. It arises in the 7th century AD, 
But as such, Muhammad put in, built into the Quran a requirement that for Muslims in good standing must give 5% of their income to charity. So Islam also has a specific charitable portion uh, that is specifically dedicated to poverty relief. So under argument one, then, we can see that there is a distinct material benefit of these religions to the poor and the societies where these religions are prevalent. Argument two is focusing on medical benefits to, uh, from, that grow out of religious practices. Beginning with that same conviction that, in fact, every human being is worthy of care because every human being is made in the divine image. And that as you treat the least of these, that's how you treat Jesus, that, bring, bring, that manifests itself in a Christian and Jewish concern for how do we care for the least of these that manifests itself in medical innovation. So let me give uh, two quick examples of this. First, in the second century, a plague struck Rome, and the Romans were fleeing Rome. But as they were going from Rome, they noticed that there were an awful lot of Christians who were going the wrong way. They were going into Rome to literally care for the sick and the dying. Why? Because they believed that this is how they would express their convictions correctly. They would show the love of Christ by literally caring for the dying and dying with them if necessary. That's one type of medical benefit, but it grows into modernity, beginning in the Middle Ages and having a specific care where monasteries were centers of medical growth, eventually growing into, as we get into some of the educational developments of the, of the modern world, growing into modern medical practice, where nationwide, the vast majority of hospitals are still to this day founded out of religious concerns. Baptist and Catholic hospitals are in every state of the union. So because of that, we can see a direct medical relationship between religious practice and direct medical benefit to a society. Check my time. Okay, got one minute remaining. Let me uh, go ahead and go on to argument number three, which is looking at full human dignity for women. Now, when we go to the ancient world, the first thing that strikes modern readers when we go back to classical antiquity is that men have all the power, all the wealth, and all the rights. We go to modernity, and we've been on a very slow but moving trajectory to bring equality between the two sexes. What changed? Christianity. Beginning in Judaism, we and then growing in with Christianity, we have a full recognition that men and women are created equal in the eyes of God. And because of that, what powers, rights, and responsibilities belong to men are shared by women. Now this again, to find a point of contrast, we have to go back to the world of ancient Rome, where again, where women are considered to be property owned by their husbands and unable to conduct business in the marketplace. It's Christianity that brings about this full flowering of equality. Now today, Islam once again is the late comer to the game. In certain parts of the world, there are left-leaning liberal Muslims who are seeking to find ways to recover, to bring into Islam a liberalizing idea of how do they have women as full, equal members of Islamic society. It's the religious impulse that is at the basis of the women's suffrage movement and at the, at the idea of treating women as fully equal under law. So while my opponent is attempting to show that the treatment of women is actually a harm under, under religion, instead what I'm showing is that historically the religious impulse to root all human nature and being made in the divine image is, a, is something that grows into full equality under the law. And with that, my time has expired. I stand ready for cross-examination. Perfect. Can you tell me how many hospitals have a religious basis? Uh, well over 60% in this country. I don't have the specific number, but I can give you a b above average percentage. Okay. And you said in your previous speech that you accepted my weighing mechanism. I right? did, yes. Okay. Tangible benefits tangible versus benefits. tangible harms. Okay. 
And I'm going to go to your first contention here. You were talking about poverty, poverty relief and that the Abrahamic religions facilitate poverty relief. Which one is the main religion in, in helping with poverty relief? Because you said you only had to prove one, correct? Well, sure, but I want to also show that that's buried inside all three. For Judaism, it's uh, Judaism and Christianity, I think, are much stronger in that area. Islam places it really at a 5% that for many Muslim businessmen, that becomes really, that, that's the extent of what they get. Okay. However, many Christian and Jewish businessmen take their wealth as an opportunity to, and as an expression of gratitude, they use their wealth as a mechanism to bless the societies in which they're in. So can you tell me to what degree world poverty has gone down over time? Oh my goodness, uh, global poverty has shrunk massively, particularly okay. in the last century. So, uh, or really in the last can you 40 tell years. Me, can you yeah. tell me what percentage of that is due to religion? Ooh, that's really hard to pin down. Uh, so part of it is that uh, as a lot of it is directly caused to the expansion of free market economics, which I would argue is also a result of the application of Christian principles to the marketplace. So you would say that free market economics is not driven by self-interest and wanting to make a living for oneself. You would say it's driven by religious belief. I would say that those are not incompatible, but okay. those are both happening at the same time. The businessman who does well for himself is better equipped to give his wealth away. And okay. that the more he does so, the more he blesses others through his wealth. So his success enables other people's success. We'll do one final question. Your, your sub-point B on contention three about Islam, trying to bring women into the, the culture and the religion. What, what is exactly the problem that they're trying to solve for? So part of what this has to do, and this, I want to get to this more in rebuttal in just a moment, but part of what's at stake there is in the origins of Islam. As Islam is growing, it brings in a lot of tribal customs that were uh, contextualized in 7th century Arabia. So Islam has been locked in an internal struggle between folks who are textually faithful to the Quran and are also locked into 1,300 years ago cultural practices versus folks who want to argue, aha, we need to recognize that there is more to this story than simply practicing Islam the way it was practiced in 700 AD. So my main example there being a guy named Mustafa Akol. Okay. Uh, we can come back to him in a little bit. Everyone ready? We'll begin now. What I'm going to do here is start going down my opponent's arguments and showing you why he is incorrect. Let's begin with the framework of this round. My opponent says that he accepts my weighing mechanism of looking at tangible benefits of religion and tangible harms of religion. First, he talks about poverty relief. And I ask him, where does this poverty relief happen? And he says it's been global, and global poverty has gone down massively over time. And I would completely agree with him there. But then I asked him, what, what amount of this is due to religion? And he says it's very difficult to pin down. And I would agree with him here as well. It is very difficult to pin down where religion helps and where it does not. This is why we can't actually see the tangible benefit of religion here. He agreed to my point that free market economics plays a large part in reducing poverty globally. We can't weigh any benefit to his side if it can't be measured by what degree religion has helped it. Instead, if you go back to my case and my first argument on terrorism, women's rights, divisive nature, and indoctrination, you can see the tangible harms that religion has brought upon society. Without an actual weighing mechanism on my opponent's side, his first contention cannot stand. Next, he also talks about how the, the Quran and Islam mandates the reduction of poverty. I'd like to remind you that the Quran does not only mandate good things, but harmful things as well. It also mandates Sharia law, and when you put Sharia law into practice, you see societies that don't work and that create problems for themselves that otherwise would not be present. And we'll see this later in my refutation as well. But first, let's move on to medical benefits, his second contention. He talks about how in Rome, the Christians were going the wrong way and were going back to help the people of Rome. Again, this is good intent, 
but what we're looking for is an actual benefit to society of the Christians going back. How many people did they help? Were these people actually healed and helped? How many Christians died as a, as a result of this and got sick themselves? What we see is only an opportunity for harms to come into play, and he gives no evidence and no examples of the tangible benefits that religion has put as far as the medical field goes. But thirdly, he talks about women inequality. And his main example is, again, Islam, and how it intends to bring women in in a more progressive nature, and how, is, um, and how Muslims are trying to solve for this problem that was before. What we see is that the problem that they are trying to solve is Islam's struggle, as he answered with me in cross-examination, is a struggle between two different views on Islam. And the solution to this is, is Muslims coming in to try to solve for this problem. What we see is that this problem would not have even been there in the first place if it weren't for Islam. So you can flow this to my side, those who are flowing, because what we can see is that Islam created the problem in its first place, and we're being counterproductive and regressing by asking it to solve the same problem that it created. But when you look at my case, which actually has tangible harms of religion, you can see that, that tens of thousands of lives are lost because of Islam. You can go back to, the world, to world War II and recognize the 10 million deaths that Judaism put on people's backs as a target. What we see is that religion has very tangible harms, but the benefits and the connection my opponent is trying to make is very difficult for him to do. All right, in this speech, I want to begin by going over the affirmative case, and then uh, I'll respond to what the affirmative has done with my case, and we'll go from there. So uh, let's start with my opponent's first contention, where he really gets at, he, he, gets in, he claims that terrorism is an impact to weigh here. Now, part of what I want to draw your attention to is that in cross-examination, my opponent was unable to tell us how long ISIS has existed. ISIS has existed for less than a decade. We are talking about a movement that begins in 2011 when a single individual arrives in Syria as Syria is coming apart and he founds a mini empire in the heart of a dying city state or a dying country called Syria and he establishes an extreme form of Islam that he declares himself to be the new caliph to establish a global Islamic empire. And I want to go on further to mention that uh, as of two months ago, the United States federal government has declared that ISIS is over. It is defeated. ISIS is done. Which means we're my opponent is resting his terrorism case entirely on an eight-year movement. An eight-year movement, 2011 to 2019. It's over. Now, my opponent is looking at some significant harms. 33,000 deaths is a big deal. 42,000 deaths per 1,000 in Baghdad is a big deal. However, let's put this in context. We are talking about 33,000 deaths in a country that has several million inhabitants. Not to devalue those individuals, but simply to recognize 33,000 pales when we consider that as a percentage of the population. The same is true when we compare 42, 000, 42 per 1,000 in a global city like Baghdad. That is not a substantial, significant number. Now, my opponent goes on to build from that the claim that religion cannot be adequately handled. And what he has not shown you in this debate is that the examples he's pulling from are normative. He has not shown you that these are the normal ways in which religion is practiced. Instead, my opponent has focused on fringe movements. Terrorism is not the norm for Islam. Islam is a global religion of, with well over one billion adherents. Less than 1% of those classify as, are classified as radical or terrorist risk, according to the United States federal government. This is not a religion that is going to result in a global struggle at, with 1 billion people fighting on the side of Islam. Instead, my opponent is telling you, he's focusing on the very small fragment that is very vocal and very violent. That's not the norm. Now, 
Let's go to my opponent's second argument, where he claims that uh, women and Sharia law is uh, one of the reasons that religion causes harm. What my opponent is ignoring is that, as, I've, as I stated in my case and came up in cross-examination, Sharia law is the cultural practice that was perfectly normal in the world of the 7th century AD. It's dragging forward cultural practices of tribal groups in northern Africa from 1300 years ago and insisting that those must be the ways that religion is practiced today. Now, within Islam, there's currently an attempt to say, is there a way to be a faithful follower of Allah and yet recognize that women and men are equal in the eyes of the law? That's a current internal struggle where Islam is trying to more, bring themselves into more alignment with the modern world. That is not a reason to say that religion causes the oppression of women. What my opponent has not done as well, he has not reckoned with my case of explaining how Christianity, based in the uh, doctrine of the image of God, gives full equality to women. So I think it's, so my case then still stands on that contention. Now my opponent then goes on in his third argument to say that religion is inherently divisive and that Christianity suffers from endless debates. However, he fails to recognize that that is part of the human condition. That too is not unique to religion. That is something that happens in every society that grants any level of freedom. As soon as people have freedom, they have disagreements. So what my opponent is asking for instead is the suppression of that kind of disagreement. Whereas my case is arguing, give people freedom. Let people disagree. Let them figure it out. My opponent is contending that even letting that conversation occur is itself somehow a harm to society. Now, lastly, my opponent stated that religion is an unnecessary indoctrination, where religion somehow fools people into believing false things. Now, I want to point out that my opponent is assuming that people are pretty dumb. My opponent is maintaining that human beings are actually unable to think through the tenets of their own religion and recognize which ones are true, which ones are false, which ones are up for debate, which ones are statements of dogma. My opponent is maintaining that we just simply need to get rid of the entire category of religious thought because people simply can't handle it. I think my opponent is incorrect on this point and that instead human beings are actually capable of considering very weighty matters and reasoning through these things to come to real convictions. Uh, now, my opponent has done quite a lot. I simply want to end my speech by mentioning that under my case, I have an awful lot of tangible benefits, which include poverty relief, medical progress, and women's rights. My opponent has not shown you a level of harm that equals or outweighs the level of benefits that I have shown you with global religious practice. What I'm going to do first is go over what my opponent said in his previous speech and then remind you of my case and show you why the affirmative must win the round today. First, he counters my point with terrorism by saying that this is not the norm, and I'm looking at an extreme example of what happens when religion goes wrong and people can't handle it adequately. I'd like to remind you that for something to be a harm, it does not need to be the norm. And what we see is a very dangerous example of terrorism going on with ISIS. I brought up the example of Al-Qaeda earlier, and it does not need to be the everyday normal for it to be harmful. But yes, this is an example of extre an extreme, but it's a very dangerous extreme with the statistics to prove that in my first argument. And we'll see how this gets more normative as we go down the list. Next, he says, with his example of, or with his reputation of my second contention with women, that Islam is trying to solve for this problem with people coming in and there's a struggle there. Again, if there was no Islam, there would be no struggle. And I'm not saying we need to abolish Islam. That's not what my side of the resolution says. What I'm saying is that it's harmful. And this struggle and this disagreement is causing problems that would not have been there in the first place if we didn't have that struggle to begin with. Next, he says that I'm arguing against the disagreement and the discourse of religion being inherently divisive. 
what I'm saying is I'm not disagreeing with the um, with people disagreeing with each other. I'm not dis I mean, that's what we're doing here right now. I'm not disagreeing with civil discourse. What I am saying is that people are being divided and he tries to attribute the impact of discourse to this. What I'm saying is that when people are divided, things like terrorism happen, and I have the statistics to back it up. It's not just discourse that results from people being divided. There are many things that result from people being divided, and lots of those, a surprising amount of those, and a, tra a tragic amount of those are very tangible deaths. Next, he says that my fourth contention about religion being an unnecessary source of indoctrination, he's saying that I am assuming people are dumb. While I am not assuming necessarily that people are dumb, and he can't attribute that line to me specifically, what I am saying is that people are not able to come to what he calls, I quote, real convictions. Why? It's because everybody has different convictions. Again, the inherently divisive nature. Nobody can agree on what the exact truth is, and we see people, people being divided because of this. And it's easy to recognize in the world how people have become indoctrinated. And it doesn't mean they can't filter through their beliefs and look at their doctrines that they believe in. But maybe it means that they won't. What we're going to do here is go back to the framework of the round that I proposed at the very beginning. We need to weigh the tangible benefits against the tangible harms. I have refuted every point on my opponent's case, and he has not rebuilt any of them. He has instead spent his time refuting my case and my four contentions, which I have just rebuilt now. Instead, what we need to do is weigh the tangible harms that we've heard today against the tangible benefits that we've heard today. And what we see is that when we cannot weigh any tangibility on the side of my opponent, we can look to the side of my case and see that terrorism, oppression, and division is ever prevalent. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this episode of What's the Res? Our esteemed judge, Dr. Melissa Edwards, will now give her verdict on this round. Hi, friends. That was delightful, by the way. Thank you so very much. I was writing so feverishly that I cannot read my notes um, because you all had so many great things to say in, in such uh, a short amount of time. Uh, the time frame on that's quite impressive. Um, so tangible is the word here, right? Measurable, evidenced, supported, um, based on the affirmative and the negative the tangible component that was most prevalent and obvious was um, from Ethan. So I award this debate to Ethan Delves. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today for a special episode of What's the Res? While we are normally all about the ongoing conversation in the, about the resolution in the world of high school debate, today we've taken a slight break from that to show you what we're up to with the, our channel, What's the Res? Premium Debates. Uh, this debate between Ethan and I is a little bit different, but it's of the same kind of thing that those episodes are all about. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please go back to the show description. You'll see the link there that'll take you to the, ch the channel page uh, at whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium, and that will show you all seven of our current premium debates that are up and available through subscription. If you like those, then do feel free to subscribe. You can do that at $3 a month. You could also save yourself a little bit of money and purchase a year-long pass. Every month, we'll be coming out with at least one new debate episode and one new analysis episode. We want to spread our love of debate with as many people as we can, and this is one way that we found to do that. We hope that you'll be interested in checking out the, what we've got on that page. 
If you like what you've heard today, then do feel free to head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That's still the best way to help people find a new podcast, and your encouragement would certainly help spread the word. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that by emailing us at whatstheres at gmail.com. You could also reach out to us over Twitter, Reddit, or Instagram. Our handle is at whatstheres underscore. You can find our page on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. We hope you've enjoyed this debate, and until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.